0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Robertus in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what, what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I will try to demystify it in this program with my co-guests. And my guest today is Elizabeth Ando, who is a food writer and a Japanese cooking instructor based in Tokyo. And she founded the culinary Arts program called A Taste of Culture, which offers a unique, unique opportunity for non-Japanese people to explore Japanese culture through its food. And she's also the author of six cookbooks, including the award-winning Washoku, Recipes from the Japanese Kitchen, published in 2005. And she was a gourmet magazine's Japanese uh, correspondent for more than three decades, and was a regular contributor for the New York Times travel section for many years.
2: Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Delighted to be here.
1: (laughs) So, and thank you for your precious time today during your short visits to the US.
2: Yeah, I was born and raised in New York, but uh, that was many, many years ago. But it's nice to be back for a visit.
1: <laughs> right. So, yeah, actually, you lived in Japan since uh, 1967 for 48 years.
2: Long time. <laughs> so uh, what made it to go to Japan in the first place? It was uh, what I call serendipity, sort of a happy accident. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an opportunity for me, uh, an unclaimed scholarship at the University of Michigan, where I was a student. And um, nobody else, I think, applied for it. I'm not exactly sure that I had no competition, but I believe I had no competition. Mm. And it was to go to Japan for a year, and it seemed like a a more interesting option than what was otherwise going to be available to me. And on the spur of the moment, said yes, and um, landed up in in Japan and in a very rural community. Mm. So I often think that... uh, the biggest culture shock was urban and rural. I was born and raised in <laughs> New York City, Manhattan, and um, it, it was quiet, it was different and um, hard to believe with today's very modern um, toilets in Japan. no flush toilets, so it really wow. it was a very different. Era mm. um, and the family that I stayed with um, obviously was was comfortable, very functional. Uh, it was a very appealing. Um, place to be, but very, very different from mm. what I had expected. Right. So that was uh, in Shikoku right. Island. Right. right. It was in
1: Osaka. So right. it must be really remote from even Tokyo. And
2: very different. And um, I went to Japan not speaking any Japanese, wow. which may or may not have been a good thing. I don't know. And uh, so the first Japanese that I learned was in the Shikoku-ben, a, a dialect, <laughs> not unlike... I. I talking about america it's sort of like the appalachian mountain ranges i mean very obviously not big city and um uh the man who eventually would become my father-in-law at the time there was absolutely no notion on on my part that that would ever happen that i would meet one of their sons and eventually marry and and Mm. stay but um so he had more time to spend with me and he sort of spent time teaching me a lot of different things and so not only did I sound like someone from Shkoku but um, an older man from Shkoku. <laughs> and when I got up to Tokyo people stared for many reasons. Okay. Why well, should I ask you in a couple of words who you are? <laughs> uh no? You know, it's sort of the end of a, a conversation. Well, okay. See ya kind of thing and Mm. everybody was always um, saying that saying all sorts of things um, to me but I didn't I didn't realize what I knew was very specific to that region (laughs) of Japan until I had an opportunity to spend some time in Tokyo (laughs) so you were a
1: big kid in Tokyo
2: I'm sure right right right
1: Right. Um, so and eventually after the program you uh, went to study um, Japanese in Tokyo right? right so But did you know that you wanted to stay a long time?
2: I, I, had you asked me um, then where I would be in 2015, I don't think I ever would have imagined what happened. But I did know that I wanted to extend my stay, that in order to do it, certainly in the 1960s, um, if you didn't not only speak Japanese, but read and write it, Mm. it was just, it wasn't going to be possible for me to do anything that I wanted to. Mm. So I had found out about a program at um, ICU, International Christian University, outside of Tokyo, Mm. that was looking for, um, gee, I call them guinea pigs, I mean, people to sign (laughs) on for this program. It was an experimental program to teach Japanese Japanese to non-Japanese, and what was important was not what your ethnic background is. I'm not ethnically Japanese, but the fact that I had not been brought up in a household mm. where Japanese was spoken or written, that I did not um, have any experience of of kanji of, of calligraphy. Mm. At the time, there were a lot of Taiwanese students in Japan, and they were not eligible for the program because at least they knew some of the calligraphy, they didn't know how it was used in the mm. Japanese language, but they were looking, the program was looking for people who knew absolutely nothing. Mm. And the fact that I spoke a little bit of shikoku-ben was okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they considered that nothing, and they were right. Um, so the program was uh, interesting. At the time, they told me it was totsuki toka, 10 months, 10 days, and it meant absolutely nothing to me. And I think probably not much to most Americans. If I said nine months, I think most people would think, ah, that's how long it takes to have a baby. And indeed, that's how the Japanese Mm, count um, by lunar months. And so the idea of the program was that you were to be reborn into the Japanese language. And it was just short of one year. And the program started with uh, Urashima Taro, a fairy tale in Japanese, and it ended with uh, Sotai Seiriron, the theory of relativity. And the idea was that in the 10 months or so that you were studying this, you would go from kindergarten through college Mm. and pick up um, lessons along the way. Mm. So uh, the Japanese uh, Ministry of Education has a very, Uh, clearly outlined Mm -hmm. agenda for children in school and uh, the university had taken bits and pieces of that along the way. But truth be told, I found it harder with um, the fairy tale. Mm. Because uh, that 's very culturally ah, specific, right. and it 's very, very different from stories mm. that I know, and lots of implications, and yeah, right. but one of the things that became immediately obvious in Tokyo, I had to live in the dormitory, mm. and dormitories typically had bad food, but this was really bad, and <laughs> um, i hadn 't realized how wonderful the food had been in Shikoku. I had sort of taken it for granted. Mm. I mean, I had a few things that I found difficult, but I fell in love with umeboshi mm. and with udon, a real udon. And, mm, udon you know.
1: is a uh, Japanese uh, one with classic noodles, but it's uh, famous in Shikoku Island.
2: Yeah, and particularly in the Sonu- Sanuki area where I was, mm. and the dashi the stock is made from they call it iriko other people in japan call it niboshi it's a dried shriveled ugly looking little sardine but wow what what an impact umami the word wasn't known Mm -hmm. to many people then but it's you know the essence of umami there and so i had not only did i have trouble with that i really loved that food and um Not Also, udon is usually written in hiragana, which is really easy to read (laughs) in menus. And so um, the first time I went into a restaurant in Tokyo and I ordered udon, because it was the only thing I could really read on the menu, um, I tasted and almost spit it out. It was that bad. Wow. And um, so I often say what got me into food was a bad bowl of noodles. Mm. Um, it made me realize that there was an enormous difference. Mm. And what what, and how could you make that difference? How could I make delicious noodles and mm. this bowl of noodles be so bad? Right, from yeah. the same ingredients. From, uh, from the same, every, I mean, everybody had the same chance to make it good, and they didn't, and right. why not? What was the difference?
1: Mm. So eventually, though, after that, moment Mm. you went to uh, the anagihara school of classical Japanese cuisine so what kind of I mean how did you find it in the first place
2: um interesting um television food television was just beginning in Japan in the 1960s and no Iron Chef then but it was beginning and uh NHK the national uh television station, NHK HK no Ryori, Today's mm. Cooking. And they had a magazine that went with it. And uh, for me, watching the television and having the magazine helped me both with hearing the language and reading and, and writing it. Um, and so I would regularly and there weren't videotapes to video so I would have to arrange to be at a television I didn't have the money to buy one on my own yet mm-hmm. but I had to be where there was a television twice a day when they would be broadcasting this and um, Yanagi Toshio sensei was one of the people mm-hmm. on NHK okay. and he was amazing mm-hmm. so the program was uh, was in Tokyo and for three years so When I first approached him, and then I also uh, wrote back to my family in Shikoku and asked them what they thought, and um, again, the woman who would be my mother-in-law eventually said, oh, yes, I watch him all the time. Also, I think if you're going to learn Japanese cooking, he's the one you should learn from. Um, So when I first got up the courage to approach him... Mm -hmm. um, He had never taken on a non-Japanese student (laughs) before, and especially one whose Japanese was not especially fluent at the time. Um, But he agreed, and he decided that I should start uh, in the evening course, because I had to support myself by working during the day, Mm. and um, for the first year, the basics. And if at the end of that time we both agreed that it was worth going further, we would Revisit the discussion, which is very sort of Japanese. You know, don't <laughs> say no, you sort of leave it open. Mm, right,
1: right. <laughs> So, um, but, you know, that's the very specific, uh, you know, style of cuisine. It's called the uh, yes. That's from uh, basically
2: developed based on a tea ceremony. And Edo style. So Mm. a lot of Japanese um, cooking that a lot of people, especially in America, are familiar with probably originated down in Kyoto or Osaka Mm. and the Kansai area. And it's quite different. This is Edo. Mm. And I think... um, Edo is the old name of Tokyo. Of Tokyo. Part of what impressed me... um, Yet i had a sensei was particularly a, a magnificent food writer mm. and i was struggling with reading and writing and reading his essays were really exciting mm. it showed me more than this is a pencil where is the train station i mean there was a reason <laughs> for learning the language because you could talk about he was a storyteller mm. and he was the one who impressed upon me the story of food okay yeah. Wow. So really made a huge impression. Mm. Um, it did decide to stay on for another two years. And uh, he originally, we had a conversation about my translating one of his books. Okay. And I started and ran into all sorts of problems. And um, uh, Yanagata sensei was a, a Meiji born man, so a very different era in Japan. Mm. Um, and very. Uh, open to thinking about the rest of the world more so than the more recent eras of Japan, especially during the war and mm. immediately post war. Okay, because so, Meiji period was right after the Japan o- opened the country
1: after two hundred years of you know, right. isolation. So. Right. So he was
2: very open minded, mm. and um, he thought for him he was an opportunity to bring a message to the english-speaking world mm. and he had never even thought of that before so he sort of challenged me to do that and i ran into significant difficulties and um we talked about it and then he turned around and he said write your own book hmm. so that was the beginning mm. so now you're the storyteller and now i'm the storyteller and uh, his grandson mm. is the head of the school so oh. a number of years <laughs> have passed he passed away a number of years ago mm. um and his son Kazanari sensei was the major teacher that I had for the other two years because mm. already uh Toshio sensei was almost in retirement okay. when I came yeah. there and now now Yuki the younger uh, mm. and third generation is um Really, uh, an ambassador for Japanese cuisine outside of Japan as well. He travels mm. as well. well. sounds like you totally succeeded uh, the sensei's spirit. I think so. I think it was o- Otala. It was a mutual. Mm. Um, it was a mutual thing, right? I'm sure he felt you're the gift of uh, the world. Um, I don't know, but he was uh, he was very generous in in and patient, mm. and the two were quite important in. Mm, getting me comfortable with um, first of all the amount of information that i was going to be Mm. taking on but Mm. also in terms of teaching so he also encouraged me to teach Mm. and helped me open my school in the early 70s okay great Mm. um so the basically you know
1: uh, you studied uh, japanese cuisine and learned a lot from him and you call it the washoku it's Washoku, right? Mm-hmm. Japanese cuisine equals Washoku. Mm-hmm. Japanese, Japanese people call it Washoku. So,
2: yeah. yeah so, w- what is Washoku? If you, you know, <laughs> if you just explain, well, it's interesting. Washoku, the word itself, of course, can mean. A culinary philosophy, a a way of thinking about food, and it's also the food that's actually made when you're thinking that way. Mm. So mm, let me explain just a bit about the philosophy and the thinking behind it, because then I think it's easier to understand the food itself. Mm. Um, Lots of different people would um, point to different uh, characteristics, but... I usually talk about three things in particular that are important for the practitioner, the person who's going to be practicing mm. washoku. Mm. And ah, um, it's not cooking, but practicing. It's practicing washoku, washoku. Yeah. and um, goshiki, gomi, goho. There are five colors, five flavors, and five ways of um, transforming your ingredients. Mm. And if you're mindful of all of them, and all of them being represented in your meal, uh, the colors, uh, each color, the pigmentation of food tells you about the nutrition. Mm. So, if you have red, yellow, green, black, and white, those are the five colors. At every meal, you don't have to worry about if you've had vitamins and minerals um. and enough protein and enough. Um, it, it naturally leads to a balanced diet if mm. you're mindful of color right. and the beautiful dishes too it's also very satisfying it's very exciting to look at it it encourages the appetite in the right kind of way mm. but the next category the flavors um let's put aside whether umami is or is not a flavor for the moment mm. there were only five in the classic <laughs> um way of thinking and the big three were sweet sour salty and then the two accents were bitter and spicy mm. and um If you have a balanced meal, meaning you have some sweet, some sour, some salty, it's likely that you will avoid food cravings. You will eat an appropriate amount Mm. of food. So for anybody who's been struggling with a diet, probably the most important thing is to make sure that you have balance Mm. in the flavors. Anybody who's ever opened up a bag of potato chips and ate it all and then had to have ice cream can attest to the fact that too much salt leads to craving sugar, right. and the other is true too. If you've just had a quart of, like, you know, ice cream, you have yeah, to have some peanuts, beat, you right? Know, like a sweet juice or something, right? <laughs> so, if you're able to balance out sweet, sour, and salty, it's likely that you will not want more food than your body really needs. Mm. The bitter and the spicy are accents to add interest and also to encourage flavor. And it's interesting that, especially in America. Bitter, unless you eat a lot of radicchio um, Or endive Is not part of the meal It's usually at the end of the meal in coffee and tea mm. Which is unfortunate Because one of the things that bitter does Is it encourages the appetite mm. <laughs> It clears your palate to enjoy Something else, so mm. rather than bringing Closure to the meal It it really doesn't It's better if you end the meal With balance rather than just Something bitter mm. And the same is true probably of spicy as well Um, So if you've got your five colors, you've got your five flavors, and then the five different ways of uh, changing or transforming food. Um, We say cooking in English, and it's interesting because it implies that you're using heat. Mm. But one of those methods is nama, or raw, where no heat is applied, and yet tremendous change. Um, anybody who's eaten a platter of sashimi can say that it's not a fish swimming in the water, but no heat has been applied. Mm. So a lot of change can happen that's not heat. Right, because sometimes they're marinated or cured. And all the world of of skemono, most of the pickles, Mm. uh, don't experience any heat either, and they're greatly transformed. Mm. So there's nama, there's raw. Um, There's simmering, which... Well, niru, it, it can be anything from simmering, um, anything in a bubbling liquid, uh, embracing, uh, blanching. There are lots of words in English and mm. in Japanese. Niru is sort of a ca- category. Yeah, we just wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's it. Um, and I think when you look at the uh, calligraphy for it, it looks like flame under a pot right. and the lid is sort of bouncing exactly. around. So it was really easy to remember how to write niru. Mm-hmm. Um And then there's yaku, which is to sear with heat. And again, in English, there's grilling, there's broiling, uh, pan searing, lots of different words for it, dry roasting. But um, again, what's different about uh, yaku from nidu is in yaku, you've got different layers of flavor. And nidu, when you're submerging it in a liquid, it's the same throughout the food Mm. that's being cooked. So very different textures from um, searing than from simmering. And uh, obviously from raw, where typically you have crunchy and, right. and other kinds of textures. So lots of textural difference. The Japanese don't classically or traditionally use an oven in closed dry heat. Mm. Um, that's something that um, other cultures taught them. Fabulous bakeries now in Japan. But it was not initially part of the um, traditional kitchen. right? Yeah um, I've never seen an oven when I grew up when I was little. And I don't have one in my house either and when my daughter comes to visit she often wonders how I can live without an oven. I <laughs> Really easy and so did you when you were little and growing up in this household but now that she's on her own she definitely likes to have an right. oven and to, and to bake and to do things on her own. Um, right. So all of those different methods give a lot of textual interest mm. but What I think is so interesting is these um, ideas, these notions, goshiki, gomi, goho, are quite ancient in Japan, at least a thousand years and probably Mm. a lot more. And um, what's so interesting is that category of method and way talks about ecosystems because if you have only certain foods available to you, because in the old days you didn't have refrigeration, you didn't have swift transportation, you couldn't import food or or really change it. What you could eat was what you had Mm. at that time of year in that location. And making it interesting, making it a full meal Mm. was a real skill. Um, And I do think that uh, today uh, cooks, chefs who are able to make a whole meal out of a single ingredient, mm-hmm. are that really shows skill and talent right. rather than bringing in other things. Mm. So long before Iron Chef and Battle of the Daikon, a thousand years or more, mm-hmm. there was this notion that you could make a whole meal right. out of a single ingredient. Interesting.
1: And actually, uh, Dan Barber of uh, you know, Bullhills, uh-huh. he kind of proposing in his book, uh, the third uh, play, about... No changing the nature. We follow the nature. So it's right. very interesting that you say that. It's,
2: it's, it's understanding your ingredient and also using it fully. Yeah. Um, the tops, the bottoms, the peels, the inside, maybe even the seeds, depending on what the fruit or vegetable is, right. certainly. Um, and it's, it's an important um, training, I think, for anybody in the kitchen to see their food their ingredients differently.
1: Great. So um, now let's take a quick break here. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about Elizabeth's uh, culinary arts program in Japan. So please stay with us.
0: Still paying attention?
2: Are you there? Hello? 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 I'm talking to you. Hi. Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something, contribute anything a dollar two dollars ten dollars a hundred dollars a thousand dollars anything counts and trust me we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations so consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org click on that little beating heart the donate button and show us you care thanks for listening i hope you enjoy the rest of the show
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Elizabeth Ando, who is a food writer and a Japanese cooking instructor based in Tokyo. She's also the author of six cookbooks, uh, including the award-winning Washoku, published in 2005. And in 2005... Uh, 1972 mm. you founded a culinary arts program a taste of culture mm-hmm. uh, which offers a unique opportunity for non-japanese people to explore
2: japanese culture through its food so why did you open it well i had just finished my own formal training at the yanagihara school and um he had suggested to me that i start teaching others that that was really the best way to continue to learn um And I agreed. And at the time, there was really nothing in the English language for people who wanted to delve deeply into Mm. Japanese food. But the um, economics of the situation and the logistics were such that the space that I had, I had to use uh, fully. Um, And so I brought in other instructors in other Arts mm. such as flower ranging and ah. uh, th- uh, calligraphy and things of that sort. And um, so, besides my teaching the culinary part, there were other people who were teaching other aspects of Japanese culture. And when I tried to find a name for it, uh, again, Yanagihara sensei suggested, Bunka no Aji, mm. a taste of culture. It was a way of uh, discovering uh, more about Japan through various different um aspects of the culture mm. and um eventually when it it, it finally um, took off and i really had a lot of people uh, a waiting list of people to come into the program uh, i decided to make it just culinary
1: mm. okay mm. Right. so um is
2: it a Two-week program, 3 days program? No, at at, at the beginning, it was a regular uh, course of study, and it was mainly for people who were the foreign residents, expat community that was in Japan. Uh, There weren't as many tourists in the early 70s, um, and I did work through some of the hotels, which did have tourists. Right. So I did have programs twice a month that people could sign on for the day before that day, and it went through the concierge desk of the of the hotel. And it was a very different kind of program. It presumed that people were uh, curious about unusual ingredients that they could mm. taste here that they might have had at a restaurant. Okay. It wasn't really about making it for yourself. Mm. Um, and... So I developed a lot of mm, one-class programs, self-contained, and a lot of people would sign on for many of them, and that was fine, but I made sure that if people were just interested in fish or they were just interested in sea vegetables, Mm. uh, particularly kaiso, sea vegetables were just puzzling Mm -hmm. to most people. Uh, Miso, um, you you would walk into a supermarket and there were two shelves of maybe 150 different kinds and what next i mean why would i choose (laughs) one instead of another and obviously they were not the same so i did a lot of tasting programs Mm. um and uh would give out recipes and samples but it wasn't so much about making the food as much as about making people feel comfortable with Mm. the food and wanting to know more and so the actual curriculum And the format of classes has changed over the years. Okay. So right now, if uh, our listeners go to your class... Please do. (laughs) So come, um, please give me advance notice. It's so difficult. I just finished reading email this morning of people who are going to be in Tokyo next week. And the answer is, I can rarely accommodate you with only a week or 10 days notice. Mm. Um, I do put together some regular programs. The next intensive, if people are going to be in Japan, November 16, 17, and... Uh, Nineteen, My three-day intensives are two days back-to-back, a day in between when I give you homework assignments, Mm -hmm. independent study, and then you come back and we do a hapyokai, a sort of recital menu, Mm. uh, together on the last day. Um, So there's still two places left Mm. if people want to be able to come to that. And then I also do uh, tasting every year about New Year's food, very special uh, New Year's food called Osechi. And that's December 5th. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a big deal. It's like... Christmas and uh, any holiday plus thanksgiving well, thanksgiving i i th- i think it's almost more like Thanksgiving because it's a family holiday right. it's not new year's eve is is not when you go out um yeah, don't, to you party. don't get drunk don't <laughs> no no you go to the local uh temple or, sh- or shrine usually the temple ring out the new year come right. back and it's and slurp noodles mm. long noodles right for a long life Right? Great. okay
1: so all right, so I will give uh, the information at the end Thank of the you. show to the listeners so um let 's talk about your books because um I really think uh, your Washoku book is beautiful and very informative so let's uh, we, I want to mention three books uh latest three books, but the right. first uh, washoku uh, what is washoku
2: so it 's this mindset of uh, using food fully and well, and especially the five colors, five flavors, five ways. Um, And in the book, Washoku, I try to give the philosophical background, the story behind the food, but also very practical Mm. so that I'm enabling people to understand the components, the building blocks of flavor and how to assemble them. It's interesting. I often think of it almost as a kaleidoscope mm. where you're you're shifting and changing and getting different patterns. There aren't that many pieces, you know, there's red, there's yellow, there's blue. But mm. but depending upon how you arrange them together, there's almost an infinite variety mm. of food that you can produce. Right. And so in particularly in Washoku, I was trying very hard to give people those very basic Building blocks. Mm,
1: for home cooks. For home cooks. Right. Very definitely home cooks. Mm. And uh, the second book, uh, Kansha, Celebrating Japan's Vegan and Vegetarian Traditions, I, I found it very interesting because it's vegetarian cooking and it's not necessarily always vegetarian
2: chicken. Right. Well, it's interesting how it became vegetarian, actually vegan. Um, my original proposal to the publishers, Ten Press, um, included a recipe for hone sembe, bone crackers. Mm. Um, the whole idea was to use food fully, to take a look at a food and not waste any part of it. Um, and indeed, there are some fish where even after you've the flesh and you've done something with it, you can fry up the bones mm-hmm. and they're quite delicious. Right. So that was part of, uh, it was a bit shocking. There are also some fish where the scales are edible if you deep fry them, crunchy and delicious, better than potato chips. Right. And so that was quite surprising to my editor. And I started, and they were intrigued, and I started to write the book, but then Quite frankly, the marketing department got back and said, we've got a lot of people who are asking about mm. vegetarian uh-huh. cooking. And um, I said, sure, there's more than enough for a book in that. And started, so it shifted to vegetarian. And then they came back and said, can you make it vegan? Mm. And I said, well, what do I have to do to make the difference? And the answer was eliminate eggs. And I said, okay. Wow.
1: But, so. you know basically <coughs> excuse me <coughs> vegetarian cooking uh, it's rooted in a buddhist philosophy yes. too which is deeply I mean used to be before you know, a long time ago there's no meat in japan that was eaten by the public so it's right. kind of a natural consequence that you had a vegetarian cooking book.
2: I yes. think so and also my mother-in-law um, was vegetarian uh, you know, shojin in the way that many women of her generation, she was also a a Meiji era person, Mm. was and um, she would cook meat for others but she did not eat it herself Mm. and I think one of the things that impressed me, especially the first summer in Shikoku was how she could feed uh, people and she was also feeding many of the workers at the factory my father-in-law had a factory um, wow, it's like so it was restaurant. like a little restaurant. Yes, it was like a little <laughs> restaurant. And how she could feed them so fully, so well, so satisfyingly with such bare essentials and transform everything into delicious, uh, nutritious uh, meals with, with almost nothing. It was really just amazing, right. the magic that she worked.
1: Hmm. So the title, kansha It's appreciation, right? Right.
2: So is it related to... It is. Uh, It's interesting. Washoku is only about food. I mean, that's what it means. But the word kancha in general is used in Japanese to talk about appreciation or gratitude. Uh, But it's interesting that when you talk about food and you use the word kancha, you're really talking about two things at the same time. You're talking about appreciating nature and what nature can provide you. But then you're also talking about people clever, interesting, resourceful people who take what nature gives Mm. and feeds others and satisfies others. So I think my mother-in-law was definitely one of those people who saw the potential and possibility in what nature had provided Mm. and turned it around to feed people very well. And so... The sense of kancha went not only to the farmer to the fisher person but to the person in the kitchen who's making that transformation happen
1: right and also to the nature because that's why they don't Absolutely. waste anything nothing right. nothing okay and uh, the third book we're going to talk about this is a uh, yes. kibo it's uh, brimming with hope right. and uh, the recipes from stories from japan in to- uh, japan's tohoku right. and Obviously, Tohoku is, uh, you know, the, the, the Tohoku earthquake, and it's snowing right. in 2011. Right. So is that the motivation that deal with the yes.
2: book? Yes, what, what happened was, so most of my, uh, most of the years I spent in Japan were either in Tokyo, primarily in Tokyo, but also in the Kansai area. Mm. Right. Uh, because of my husband's business, we actually lived a double life, Osaka and Tokyo, for many, many years, oh, had wow. two homes. Um, and Shikoku, because it still had ties back to Shikoku. Um, I had visited the Tohoku, but I hadn't really explored its food at all. Mm. And it just so happened that I was in Tokyo on March 11th. I had a program mm. scheduled to teach on March 12th. I had come up from Osaka the night before uh, in order to prepare and literally thrown off my feet in mm. Tokyo. And... Um, I was quite sure it was the big one that everybody had talked about and then finally listened to the emergency uh, radio station and discovered that the quake had actually been in Sendai. And I knew enough of the geography to know how far away that was and how devastating it must have been. And later in the day, watching um, the drama unfold, I wondered what I could do um, mm. I knew that I would be in the way if I physically tried to go to Japan, uh, go up to the Tohoku and uh, do a soup kitchen. I had done that in Kobe in 1995 right. when they had had a big quake, mm. but I was considerably younger and it was a different situation. Right. Um, so I was wondering what I could do, and I, it, it occurred to me that the best thing that I could do was to tell the story of the food and mm. do it in English get it out there to the rest of the world, and especially before it would change and morph into something that nobody would recognize. Uh, Obviously, it became very obvious very early on that there would be mass evacuations and that people would not be able to resettle again. Mm. So I did most of my research through blogs, Japanese okay. language blogs Because I couldn't go up there I did follow up with some phone calls When communications were re It mm. was really devastating <laughs> um, and uh, eventually, a year later, went up to the Tohoku, all six prefectures, not just the three that were affected most by the disaster, mm. um, and traveled around and actually met people. But the initial uh, manuscript for that book was written basically on, on finding people through blogs. Okay, so uh, it's it's
1: a cookbook, but also kind it, of records its stories. Records UI stories. Yeah. And uh, interestingly, the cover photograph is a plate of rice balls.
2: Right. So it's interesting that up in the Tohoku, they call it onigiri. Mm. And when I had first made acquaintance with them, they were omusubi. Because <laughs> that's what most people in Shikoku were calling them. Right. Back in the 60s. <laughs> okay. And they're really the same thing. Um, and so the first story that I tell is about how this omusubi maven um, became an onigiri uh, expert right. up in the Tohoku. It was the first food that survivors got to eat. Oh, okay. So uh, it it was made, and, and I tell the story of a group of very multicultural, very multi um, Uh, just a a group of people who came together, including um, Muslims, they they used a mosque in Tokyo to Mm. actually make thousands and thousands of onigiri Mm. and got them up to the Tohoku. And it was the first food that that most people got to eat and sustain them until they were able to Mm. have warm food and other things
1: to eat. That's great because uh, to me, onigiri, omusubi, that's at the heart of Japanese I'm curious, Mind.
2: which word did you grow up with?
1: Um, I think onigiri.
2: Onigiri, yeah. yeah. I, I have a feeling it's not really geographic and it's not really gender. Sometimes women use one word and men oh, yeah. use others. And, well, in <laughs> other things, in right. food. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. Most people in Shikoku call them omusubi and most people in Tokyo call them Onigiri. onigiri, yeah, yeah. yeah I grew up in Tokyo, so <laughs> they're, they're, anyway, they're they're good, and and you can put almost anything you want in the middle. Mm. The ones that actually went up to the Tohoku originally mm. were umeboshi, uh, pickled plums, partly because they wouldn't spoil, right. um, and that they were actually um, uh, chopped up and mixed in with the rice, mm. and then formed into the balls with the uh, nori around it.
1: Right. Yeah. So and, yeah, I'm sure onigiri made a lot of people who have other oh, the
2: The only sort of discussion that I had had with my publisher was um, I didn't think that three should be on the cover Mm. because nobody got three. Uh You were lucky if you got one. Wow. And they said it just didn't look right. Mm. So the cover was three and it was part of hope. (laughs) And hope that you would get to eat more than one. Mm. Um, But most people got one. Right. And that was it. Wow. Okay. So um, hopefully uh, a
1: lot of people... Keep reading, Kibo. Um. I
2: hope so. And uh, a portion of the proceeds go uh, to the Tohoku to jumpstart new business up there and particularly in the food world Mm. and uh this coming march will be the fifth anniversary right and i'm currently planning to do a number of fundraising events here in america Mm. we don't have the details yet but when i do i'll let you know
1: okay great oh i'd like you to come back yes yeah we are unfortunately running out of time but uh, you have so much to talk about because I, it seems like you understand Japanese cuisine more than the average Japanese people.
2: Well, I realized sure. the other day when, when you pointed out that I had been there 48 years, that makes me living in Japan longer than most Japanese. <laughs> and deeply. think yeah. you are. It's, it's my home. I love to come back to New York, and it's very exciting. But I'm hoping that everyone will come visit me in Tokyo. Okay,
1: great. Alright, so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, if you'd like to know more about Elizabeth's book, books and the program and everything coming up, right. uh, please visit uh, tasteofculture.com and if you have any questions or comments about the show, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org and by the way, we just launched a beautiful new website, so please visit our page uh, Japanese and Japanese live on uh, at 3pm on Mondays And uh, always available at heritagevalionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher Podcast. And today's show was made possible by Santori and our engineer is Liz Smith. I'll see you next week.